The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, if you would, take your Bibles uh, with me and let's open up to the book of Acts. We're in uh, the book of Acts today. Uh, today is uh, our congregational meeting, and uh, Acts chapter 6 is a foundational text for keeping the main thing the main thing. Uh, the book of Acts is a history of the birth, the growth, and the expansion of the church. Uh, the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, uh, most likely during a prayer service as the disciples were all gathered together in one place in Acts chapter 2. And it was at the same time uh, that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And by that one spirit, they were all baptized into one body, the one body of Jesus Christ, as described in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And Romans 8, 9 goes on to say that if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And the giving of the Spirit of Christ in Acts chapter 2 identified this group of disciples with the Christ that they belonged to. And immediately after this inauguration of the church, the Lord began to add numbers, add members to the church as a result of the word of God being preached. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. The, the first day of the, the church, the birthday of the church, it was birthed in a sermon. And it was as a result of the word of God being preached that the church began to grow. It was preaching, the preaching of the kingdom of God and of the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at that teaching that the church grew. And that's how the church expanded throughout the book of Acts. And that's how the church consistently expanded throughout the book of Acts. It was by the, the word of God. Uh, the book of Acts opens with a sermon and it closes with a sermon. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 31, the book closes with this triumphal note where Paul is preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. With all openness unhindered. And that's the, the final word on the church. The church was, was being, uh, the word of God was being preached unhindered. And you could literally uh, take that, that final word of the, the book and place it over the entire book as the banner, as the title of the entire book, unhindered. The, the word of God is unhindered. It's unstoppable. You can't contain it. You can't restrain it. You can't hold it back. It won't be silenced. It won't be muzzled. But just because the word of God is unhindered, doesn't mean that the word of God is unopposed. The word of God is greatly opposed. Even in Acts chapter 28, in the very same context where Paul is said to preach the word of God unhindered, guess where he's preaching that word of God unhindered from? He's doing it, ministering in chains. He was a prisoner at the time. Under house arrest in Rome, in Acts chapter 28, verse 16, it says, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Paul is likely in chains, chained at the wrist to a Roman guard. Paul is under lock and key, but the word of God is free. It's unhindered. It's unchanged. It's loose and letting it rip, doing its work regardless of the circumstances. And I don't see that in any of the books on church growth. You know, send your pastor to jail for preaching the word of God and watch the church grow. Watch what takes place. But that's exactly what happened. The word of God spread even under opposition. The word of God will be opposed. And the book of Acts chronicles the opposition to the word of God alongside of the triumph of the church and the unhindered power of the word of God. For example, in Acts chapter 4, we find right alongside of the triumph of the church, religious persecution. Religious persecution in Acts chapter 4, you could actually start at verse 1 in Acts chapter 4. In verse 1, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. The word of God is being opposed, opposed by persecution, but persecution did not hinder the power of the word of God. If you look in verse 4, the next verse, it says, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. You know, talk about unhindered power of the, the word of God. The church grew in the midst of persecution. It actually stirred up the confidence of the people of God. In uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. It actually emboldened people to speak even more. They began to speak the word of God with boldness, it says in verse 31. So the, the word of God continued to go out unhindered even in the midst of persecution. But also there was opposition to the word of God by the hypocrisy of hypocritical liars. If you look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, you have another uh, form of opposition to the church. Chapter 5 and verse 1 it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you have a hypocritical liar seeking their own glory rather than the glory of, of Christ. And that's a hindrance to the church, isn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with Ananias and Sapphira selling their property. Now, there's nothing wrong with them keeping back some of the price for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. What was wrong was lying about what they did and presenting themselves as something that they were not. That's what was wrong. You know, instead of coming in singing, I surrender some, I surrender some, they came in singing, I surrender all. I'm giving everything to the Lord. I've, I've sold my house and all of the proceeds are going to the church. We need to beware of coming into the assembly and pretending to be somebody that we're not. It's deadly. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You could have done what you wanted with it. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. To God you've lied. And here it's equating the Holy Spirit with God. The Holy Spirit in verse 3 is the God of verse 5, of verse 4. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. A church full of hypocrites would have been devastating to the church. It would have undermined the preaching of the word of, of God. But the Lord addressed hypocrisy by taking Ananias out. Verse 6, it says, The young men got up, covered him up. After carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I mean, three hours later? Three hours late to church? <laughs> You know, MacArthur asked the question, how long does it take to do your hair, right? You know, three hours later on, you finally show up. And she observed, you know, here, here we have a, a three-hour-long uh, uh, church service. So if we, if we go two hours, I mean, we've we still got time left over, right? We've got time in the bank. But here it is in uh, verse 9. It says, then Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And you would have thought that this would have been a, a devastating blow to the church. You might as well close the church doors after this one, right? Verse 11 says, And great fear came over the whole church, over all who heard these things. I mean, this would have been a PR nightmare. I mean, how are you going to put a positive spin on this one? You know, God puts major donors in the church to death, right? Who's going to visit the church with a word like this on the street? Don't go to that church. People die there, right? That was actually the concern in verse 13. It says, but none of the rest dare to associate with them. But the word of God was still going out unhindered. It says, however, the people held them in high esteem and all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. The church is unstoppable. But as we turn the page to Acts chapter 6, we find another threat against the church, but this time it's an internal threat. And the potential for opposition to the word of God is coming from within, and often the threats that come from within are often the deadliest. 
When the attack comes from the outside of the body, outside of the body, it's more obvious, like hypocritical liars, they can be identified and dealt with. You know, when the threats are, you know, false teaching, you can identify that and deal with that. When the threat comes from persecution, you can identify that and bear up under that. But it's those internal issues, the internal strife, you know, the, the things that lay beneath the surface that grow like a cancer and can destroy the life of the church from the inside. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 6. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6 together, starting at verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin in Acts chapter 6. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we are so grateful for uh, another opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through it, uh, that you would help us to understand these things, apply these things to our lives. Uh, Father, that you would uh, be gracious, uh, Lord, to open up your word to us and help us uh, to to apprehend uh, these things, Lord. And uh, Father, I pray that we would not walk away as those who behold their face in a mirror and forget what they look like. But, Father, that we would be changed. And, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It would be clear to most of us, as I mentioned before, that the gospel of God is constantly under attack. But it's not always clear where those attacks come from. You know, persecution, you know, more obvious, false teaching, you know, maybe not as obvious as persecution, but it's still pretty obvious. Sinful living would be obvious, but many people wouldn't consider an attack or identify an attack that comes from within concerning the the widows of the church. Why why would that be a threat against the church? But this concern was so significant that it was placed right in between chapter 5 where we have the disciples being flogged in order not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and chapter 7 where Stephen is killed as the first martyr of the church. Right in between those two events, you have this story of the overlooking of widows in the church. Right in between those two major attacks, you have this distribution about food. I mean, does that really belong in between flogging and the the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7? You know, is the church food drive really such a significant threat that we need to devote this amount of space to it? And the answer is yes. And it's because the unity of the church and the priority of the church were at stake in this food distribution The division in the church and the distraction of the church are major gospel threats to the growth and advancement of the church. Number one, do you think division is a major threat to the church? Anybody remember the year 2020? (laughs) There are churches that still haven't recovered from 2020. The division over COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and the 2020 elections. There are churches that still haven't opened up Churches that have closed down because there was so much upheaval during that period of time. I know of a pastor who faithfully served his church for decades. He performed their weddings. He dedicated their children. He visited them in sickness and distress, counseled them in the hospital. He prayed for them. He officiated their funeral services, preached the word, evangelized the lost, But when he wasn't vocal enough during the Black Lives Matter movement, this same church asked for his resignation. After decades of faithfully serving a church, asked for his resignation because, you know, you're not speaking up enough. Division is a major threat to the church. And concerns over the distribution of food in Acts 6 was like a dry powder keg that just needed a a match to, to light it into flame and explode. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Division is a major threat to the advancement of the church. The other major threat to the church is distraction, distraction from the the main priorities of the church. And this is subtle, but it's no less dangerous to the long-term growth and advance of the church because even good things can become the enemy of the best thing, right? In the early 1800s, there was a cloth maker and a merchant in the city of London by the name of George Williams, who was appalled by the spiritual condition of the the young men in the city of London. Many of the the young men who were 
were drawn to the city of London for work during the Industrial Revolution, spent much of their time outside of work getting drunk in the taverns, engaging in prostitution in the London brothels. George Williams held meetings for prayer, for Bible study with some of his fellow businessmen and began to discuss the promotion of Christianity and improving the spiritual condition of young men who worked in the the drapery, you know, making cloth, fabrics, embroidery, and other trades. And with the help of 11 of his friends, he combined preaching in the streets and the distribution of religious tracts with an invitation to wholesome recreation that would preserve some of them from their temptations to alcohol, gambling, and prostitution. And on June 6, 1844, he held the first meeting that led to the founding of the YMCA, right? But who would know the YMCA today as a place that preaches the gospel, distributes tracts, and helps people improve their spiritual condition? No, nobody knows the YMCA for that. You know, you just drop the MCA, it's just the Y, right? It's just the Y. Over time, even good things can become the enemy of what's best. The Y is just another open gym, and sadly, there's a lot of churches that have gone down the same road. A lot of churches aren't anything more than an open gym, a food distribution center, a clothes distribution center, a daycare, a school, a political rally, a gathering for social activists, but the gospel's not present there anymore. There was a young man who was visiting uh, from, from Africa. He talked about these U.S. missionaries who visited his country and They noticed while they were there that there were a lot of children who didn't have shoes, so they went back home to the U.S. and raised money and bought and distributed shoes to all the children that came back to Africa, to his country, and distributed shoes. And uh, he says, I didn't know I needed shoes until they told me. I I was perfectly happy without the shoes. He says, but what I did know is that I was a sinner and I needed forgiveness, and not one of them shared the gospel with me. They made all this fuss about making sure that everybody had shoes and not one of them shared the gospel with them. I mean, forget the shoes and bring me the gospel. H.B. Charles said, any organization can put new clothes on a man, but only the gospel can put a new man in the clothes. (laughs) And that's what we're interested in doing, putting a new man in the clothes. We're about the gospel. We're about gospel work. Are we allowing good things to become the enemy of the best thing. Do you understand that the gospel message is the greatest treasure that you have? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, it says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, to to, to display the knowledge and the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to give as a church. But let's jump back into our text, Acts 6.1. There's a problem that was identified. We already took a look at it. Uh, This time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. We're going to examine the problem, but, but don't miss the encouraging details, okay? Number one, the church is growing. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, and if the disciples were increasing in number, that meant that the proclamation of the gospel had to precede that. So the gospel is going out. Disciples are increasing in number. People were being told, you need to repent, believe, trust in Christ. They were baptized, introduced into the family of God. So the church is proclaiming, the church is growing, and the church is also serving. Don't miss this. There was a daily serving of food. This is great. This is great. There was actually a, a daily serving of food in the first century. They were, they were serving their community. Apparently, uh, the Christian church picked up a practice from the Jewish synagogue. According to, to one author, uh, the synagogue had a regular organization to help those in need. Uh, they preferred to give their alms to the poor through the synagogue rather than doing it individually. 
And each Friday, every community and every community, two official collectors went around in the markets, called on each house, collected donations for the poor, and gave to the, to the needy. And this is something that the, the Jewish synagogues had in place. And here the Christians pick up on that same kind of idea. We're, we're gathering together these goods. We're distributing to everybody who has need. This fund was called a basket in the, the Jewish synagogues. And in addition to, the, uh, to that, there were these daily collections of food from house to house for those who had emergencies. You know, so this is something that they would, they would do. And the, the fund for emergencies was called the tray. You know, there's the tray and the basket. The tray is the immediate needs. You know, the basket is, you know, ongoing needs. And this is something that the church was involved in. Giving to the poor, meeting the needs, and especially of these widows, and also the church was diverse. If you look at verse 1 again, that there's a complaint between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. So there were Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews and the native Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews. Uh, Homer Kent in his commentary says that the Hellenists were Greek-cultured Jews, many who had returned to Palestine in their later years. Uh, these were Jews who spoke Greek regularly. Uh, used the LXX, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as their scriptures, and they were sometimes resented by their Hebrew-speaking brethren. It wasn't a racial war so much as it was a, a cultural war. You know, these were the Jews that came from the other sides of the tracks. They didn't fit in culturally. They didn't fit in socially. And here's where the problem came in. When the food collections were distributed, some of the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. It's not that they appeared to be overlooked. They were being overlooked. At least that's what the complaint is, right? And that's very serious. It's a very serious charge, especially when you consider the Lord's compassion for widows. James 1, 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So there was the sinful neglect, if not a sinful discrimination that was happening in the church. And the complaint arose to the apostles. The problems identified, communicated to the apostles, and now they established the priority, okay? And if you weren't familiar with this text, this would come across as shocking. Look at chapter 6 and verse 2. It says, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Again, if this is your first time reading the section, it could seem like the apostles are, are minimizing this. They're brushing it aside. When they say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God, uh, they use the, the Greek word arestos, which could be translated as it's not pleasing, it's not fitting. The ESV says it's not right, which might be a bit strong, but the idea is that we're not the best people to be personally involved in this task. And the way they describe the task even seems cold. They don't say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve widows. They say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And at first, it seems like the care for widows has been reduced to table service. You know, we're not going to go around and serve tables. You know, did you hear that? The apostle just referred to that widow as a table. You know, that, that's all, all she is. It's just a table service. I mean, who does he think he is? That's not what the apostles are saying. What they're saying is that we do serve widows. We do serve widows. But the primary way that we serve widows is not at the table. It's from the pulpit. You know, there, there's a way that we serve the widows, but it's not in the table service. And what's consistently heard from the, the widows, even here at, at Baltimore Bible Church, is that they appreciate being fed the word of God and that they want a strong pulpit to continue bringing the word of God. You know, the task of serving tables is different than serving widows and shepherding widows. We do serve widows. We do shepherd widows. But when it comes to some of this practical service, they said this is not for us as the apostles to take care of. But widows need to be cared for. They need the word. They need to be shepherded. You know, the widows for the word campaign, you know, should be going on, right? Widows need the word of God. And if you doubted how seriously the apostles took this concern, look at what they did. And consider all, the, all of this is at the initiation of the apostles. First of all, they, they summoned the congregation. Look at verse 2. It says, so they... So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples, called the entire congregation together to talk about it. And, and this time, the congregation might have numbered into the, to the thousands. It was uh, somewhere between 10 and 20,000, some commentators uh, uh, think and, and agree. Uh, this is the first congregational meeting that we know about. Multiple thousands are gathered together, and it's all to talk about distributing food to widows. They also provided the solution. 
apostles came up with the solution. They didn't say, hey, you guys take care of it. We can't be bothered with that. You know, I'll be in my office when you need me. The apostles came up with the solution that was wise, it was carefully thought out. Select from among you seven men. So they thought through that. They even thought about the number needed. You know, seven are going to be needed for this task. They're thinking administratively. And then they outlined the spiritual qualifications for these men. They were all men, you know, seven men. They were to be of good reputation. You know, good reputation is literally men who are testified about. You know, they, they, have, uh, they come upon recommendation. They're full of the Spirit, which means that they're Spirit-controlled men. And to be Spirit-controlled or Spirit-filled in Ephesians 5 is also to be Word-filled in Colossians chapter 3. So they're controlled by the Spirit and by the Word of God. And finally, they're men of wisdom. They're, they're men who know how to apply the Word in challenging circumstances. Uh, the word for wisdom in the Old Testament meant uh, to, to live life with skill. And in the New Testament, the word for, for wisdom refers to the ability to use knowledge for correct behavior. And they would also send these men out with delegated authority for their tasks. You know, find these men that we may put in charge of this task, which lets us know that these men are more than, you know, simply servants who go out to serve on their own. They're being charged and delegated authority by the apostles. We're putting them in charge of these things. And this initiation and intentionality came by the apostles, which highlights the great significance that they placed upon the complaint. This is significant enough to bring all the congregation together. We're going to appoint some men to take care of the task, and this is how we're going to do it. And, and you're going to help us to find these men. But we're going to devote ourselves to the Word of God. That, that's what we're going to do. It's an important task, but it's not something that we can take care of. Verse 4 says what they will devote themselves to. It says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's an important task, but it's not important enough for us to neglect the word of God and prayer. To be devoted, kartereo in the Greek, proskartereo actually, the word kartereo by itself would have meant to be devoted to. The, the prefix adds strength to it. It's to be really devoted to. We give our lives to these things. In 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16, it says, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, the teaching of the word of God, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Uh, at the Master's Seminary, they, they used to have the slogan, We train men as if lives depended upon it. Now they just changed the, the slogan to say, train for ministry because lives depend on it. Lives do depend on it. You know, this, this is a serious task, and we're going to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That, that's what the Lord has called us to do. The word of God and prayer should occupy such a significant amount of time that the apostles here, they're saying, I don't have enough time to get involved in the food distribution ministry because this is going to occupy my time. That they had to turn down an invitation to serve in a ministry because the word of God and prayer occupied so much of their time. I've asked myself, you know, does prayer take up such a significant amount of time that I have to turn down invitations in order to pray? You know, sorry, I can't get involved in that because I need to dedicate that time to prayer because prayer occupies that. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, I have so much to do today that I'll have to spend the first three hours in prayer. You know, basically letting us know that, like, you know, everything that I do, if I'm doing more, it requires more prayer. I'll have to spend more time in prayer because I've got so much to do. You know, most of us are cutting the prayer out when we have so much to do. A professor used to say prayer is not just preparation for the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. That is the ministry. The ministry of the Word of God and prayer. And there's no question that the ministry of the, the Word of God is something that requires time. It's actually the, the word of God that's mentioned twice in this text. In verse 2, it says it's not desirable for us in the second half to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And then the word of God is mentioned again in verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the word of God is mentioned first. It's mentioned twice. So there's no dispute about how important the word of God is and the priority that it should take. The word of God it's so important that we need to find other people to delegate other important ministry to. And if you're looking for the origin of New Testament deacons, Acts 6 would be the best place to find it. Because the separation of duties in Acts chapter 6 
matches the separation of duties over in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, the elders are to be devoted to the word just as the apostles were. And the deacons served to free up the elders just as the men in Acts chapter 6 freed up the apostles to do their ministry. So many would consider Acts chapter 6 to be the prototypical deacons or the introduction to the office of deacons. And if that's true, there's a few things that we can learn about the role of of deacon. Number one, a deacon's primary qualification is his character, not his skill. His character and not his skill. This is a helpful observation that was pointed out in a Nine Marks article. It says, when the apostles looked for someone to oversee the daily distribution of food, they didn't say, find somebody who's experienced at food handling and distribution. The qualification was find men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And so often when the church looks for deacons, they just find for somebody who's qualified at a task. You know, who who really knows how to do this task really well? Rather than finding somebody who's full of the spirit, wisdom, and of a good reputation. They just identify somebody who's good at finances. Let's put him in there. Find somebody who's good at music. Put him in there. Find somebody who's good at building management. Hey, put him in there because we need somebody to do that task. But the the first qualification was, where are the spirit-filled men that we can over? over these tasks. So, so the, 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 the primary qualification is character, not skill. It would be better to find men who are full of the spirit and then they can find the other people to help them out who have expertise in an area because you want the church to be led by spirit-filled men. You know, you can make up for a lack of skill. You can't make up for a lack of character, right? There, there's no app for that. You know, you, you've got to be a person of character. Number two, a deacon should be a unity builder, a unity builder, a term that some have used is a shock absorber. You know, when, when blows are coming against the church or against the leadership, that the deacons are the first line of defense, like a shock absorber. You know, think about what's going on in the early church. Division is brewing over the daily distribution of food. So not only were these men appointed to help distribute the food, but also to restore unity where it had been fractured. Again, you know, uh, Jamie Dunlap in this Nine Marks article makes this connection. He says, unity building was their primary goal. Good administration was the means. Accordingly, our churches should select deacons primarily for their track record of making peace, only secondarily for administrative expertise. That makes so much sense. You know, again, the deacons can delegate out a lot of the, the work, but they need to be the ones who can build the bridges, make the connections, absorb the shock when the attacks are coming against the, the church. And finally, the last one I'll mention is a, a deacon's goal should be to assist the leadership. The, the men of Acts chapter 6 were appointed not to compete with the apostles or to come up with their own agenda, but to serve under the apostles' direction as a complement to the apostles. In verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men whom we may put in charge of this task. So the apostles are the ones who are in charge, and they're setting these Men, you know, we can call them the prototypical deacons, we're, we're going to set you over the task, but, but we're the ones who are giving the direction. We have the agenda, right? It's not the, the deacons coming up with their own agenda. Again, the article points out the elders are called to direct the affairs of the church. Deacons are called to support the direction. In our churches, then, elders should make the directional decisions while deacons facilitate congregational involvement to make that vision a reality. It's not a competing role, but a complementary role. Alexander Strzok in his book on deacons actually makes the case that, that the word for deacon could legitimately be translated as assistant. And that actually clears up a lot of the confusion about what a deacon is. A deacon is an assistant. And he argues that the word is purposefully broad, you know, a servant, an assistant, because there are so many ways that deacons assist the leadership. There's multiple ways that they assist the leadership. So hopefully that clears up some of the confusion around deacons. It's not just, you know, deacons deal with the, you know, the budgets and the buildings and, you know, uh, uh, the you know, kind of basic upkeep or whatever of the building. It's like, no, like deacons serve in a variety of ways within the church. And for some, you know, the deacons is just the property manager of the church, the, you know, the guy who closes the doors and turns out the lights. You know, I remember growing up in church, you know, the, the deacon would be the guy at the light switch, you know, when the fellowship was going too long, he'd start flicking the lights on and off, <laughs> telling everybody you need to get out. <laughs> I remember my professor, he said that one deacon started doing that to him in the middle of him sharing the gospel with somebody after church. 
So he said afterwards, he went to the deacon, he says, if you need to go home that badly, I'll turn out the lights. But don't start flicking the lights off and on when I'm here sharing the gospel with somebody. You're here to assist me in the ministry, not to distract me from what I'm doing in the ministry. You know, so, so stay away from the light switches, guys, all right? Just stay away from the, from the light switches. Another poor definition of a deacon is that they're the financial officers of the church. And I'm personally very thankful that we have qualified men and women who handle our finances. That's just one of the ways that deacons serve here. But, but that's not the, the, the primary job description of the deacon. You know, he, he holds the purse for the church and tells the elders, no, you can't do that because uh, we don't have the money for it. You know, that, that's not what the deacons are, are called on to do. And unfortunately, in some churches, the budget becomes the main driver of the ministry. You know, so the elders might set a direction. Well, no, we can't do that. You know, I'm looking at the budget here. We need to have our nest egg and, you know, enough for a rainy day. And then they start directing what the elders can do or what the church can do. Because, you know, I'm the one that's got, I got the budget. I'm the one that's directing the budget here. So now the, the elders have to submit to the deacons on, you know, what, what they feel is okay for them to do. That's not what we're to do. The, the deacons aren't the main drivers for the priorities of the church which leads me to another poor definition of deacons, that they're the boardroom executives. In some churches, the deacons are the governing body of the church. They hire the pastor, they fire the pastor. They lead the church in decision-making. They set the direction for the church. Nothing happens in the church without the deacon's approval and permission. And in many ways, the deacons are the elders of the church, and the elders work for them. You know, the pastor works for us. But again, we don't find evidence of any of that in the scriptures. Another poor definition of a deacon is a faithful attendee. You know, a deacon is just somebody who shows up to church faithfully. You know, if you're a warm body, you've made it to church every week for a month. Hey, hey, brother, you ever thought about becoming a deacon? Uh, we actually have uh, one of our members here who said that he was made a deacon of a, of a church and he wasn't even a believer yet. I just showed up. I was, I was consistent. I was a warm body. Hey, put him in there. He looks responsible. You know, he can put his shoes on the right foot. You know, let's, let's get him in there. Put him into ministry. Alexander Strzok, he actually writes about a woman who was concerned for a friend whose husband wasn't attending church and wasn't probably even saved. And she called the pastor of the church and said, hey, can you make him a deacon? Because that might actually get him to come to church sometime. That's, that's not what we do with the, the ministry of the church, the offices of the church. And another poor definition of a deacon is just anybody who serves. Anybody who does anything in the church is a deacon. You know, Alexander Strzok talks about going to one church, and he was introduced to the coffee bar deacon. You know, the guy that serves coffee. I'm thankful for the coffee, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a deacon because you serve coffee on Sundays, which means that deacons completely lost all biblical meaning it can be anything. Anybody's a deacon. You're a deacon. He's a deacon. Everybody a deacon, deacon, right? But a deacon is to be regarded as a high position within the church, a position of high standing, 1 Timothy 3. Actually, you can turn there, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Speak about the office of, of deacon. Chapter 3, look at verse 8. gives the qualifications for deacons. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, Faithful in all things, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The deacon is one who serves and it's a high, high standing, great confidence in the faith. The deacon is one who receives this kind of designation. One who serves. But guess who else is somebody who's one who serves? Jesus comes as one who serves. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, it says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And the Bible actually uses the, the Greek word for deacon for Jesus. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant. He uses the diakonos word group. He's become a deacon to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Jesus becomes the deacon for the circumcision and the deacon for the uncircumcision. The deacon for the Jews and the deacon for the Gentiles. I am among you again as one who serves. And how does Christ come as one who serves? He gave his life up as a ransom for many. He sacrificed himself for the benefit and blessing of the church. And now he calls on others to come behind him to follow his example and to serve. That's what deacons are. They're servants. They're those who come along and assist. And it's, again, to, to prioritize the ministry of the word of God. But let's flip back to Acts chapter 6 and just wrap this up really quick. Acts chapter 6. We have the problem that was identified, the priority that was established. And number three, we have the plan that was executed. Look at uh, Acts chapter 6, starting at verse, verse 5. It says, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And here where it says that the the statement uh, found approval with the whole congregation, so this plan is executed, and the congregation gets behind it. When it says that the statement found approval with the whole congregation, uh, some try to find in that statement an argument for congregationalism, that the, the congregation was actually making the decisions within the early church. You know, it's, they, they, they call it a congregational rule. But the word approval simply means that the congregation was pleased with the decision. They were happy about the decision that the apostles made. They weren't happy about their decision. They're happy about the apostles' decision. And if the apostles were coming to the congregation for congregational approval, would that mean that the congregation could vote down the apostles? I mean, of course not. You don't, you don't have the, the congregation voting down the apostles' direction. And again, if this is congregational rule, this would also argue for a 100% vote because it says that the statement found approval with the whole congregation. When do you find 100% approval for anything, especially within the church, right? I don't see a congregational rule here, but I do see congregational involvement, congregational affirmation. There, there's a role for the church as a whole, and they're actually involved in helping to choose the men that they believe would help settle the dispute. And look at the list. Look at who they chose. It says, and they chose Stephen, the man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And that list might not mean much to you, but just imagine for a minute that this is a dispute over Spanish-speaking widows that were being overlooked. And then they picked the list, and the list of seven men sounded like this. We picked Jose and Luis and Pedro and Carlos and Juan and Julio y Jorge, you know. That's the list. They pick these, these names. Automatically, what would you hear in that? They're, they're picking Spanish names, you know, Spanish men who are going to, Spanish-speaking men who are going to help out with these Spanish-speaking widows. In the same way, when the early church heard this list, all of these names would have sounded Greek. They're picking Greek-sounding names, you know, Greek men, you know, or at least uh, Hellenistic, you know, uh, Jewish people to help out with this Hellenistic you know, the Hellenistic widows. All the names on the list were Greek-sounding names. Even Philip, which was popular among Jewish people, was a Greek name. But before we assume that this was just some form of tokenism to satisfy the Greek-speaking Jews, keep in mind that the qualifications mattered. You know, what was important, first of all, was that they were all qualified. Seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and Stephen is specifically said to be full of faith as well and of the Holy Spirit. And these were the men who were brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. So the apostles gave the final approval. It wasn't just a popular vote. 
The laying on of hands was a, a means to identify yourself with the person that you're laying your hands on. And in this case, it was a symbol of delegated authority. The apostles are identifying these men to have delegated authority to act on the apostles' behalf. So the apostles had to sign off on this list, and they made their decision after prayer. And what was the result? Look at verse 7. What was the result? The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The goal is accomplished here. The priority is protected. The priority is protected. The goal was to protect the word of God in prayer, and that's what these men helped to guard for the church, that the apostles would be able to dedicate themselves to the word of God and prayer. And what's the result? The word kept spreading. The disciples kept increasing. A great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They even had a, a, an opportunity to, to, to witness to, to those who were coming out of Judaism. And this is the result of the church guarding and helping the apostles to guard the priority of the word of God. That this was the result. That the word of God continued to spread. More disciples were added. That the church is having an an influence, an impact. You know, even across the Jewish lines here. This is what the church should be engaged in doing because we prioritize the word of God. We prioritize the word of God. And today, during our congregational meeting, we're going to be asking our church to help us guard and protect the ministry and the priority of the word of God and to promote the the spread of the word of God and the prayer that should be taking place within this church. And the way that that happens is by the body assisting the leadership of the church in order to serve and to meet the needs that we have right here within our own congregation. That's how this works. The body helps, works together, you know, with the, the leadership to promote the word of God, to promote prayer, to promote the priorities that God has uh, given us in his word. Same thing that we read about over in Ephesians chapter four, uh, that the, the leaders are equipping the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. And that's what we do together as we uh, come together as a church. So uh, today we're gonna be asking you a couple things. Number one, during our congregational meeting today, we'll be asking you to recommend the names of some men that you've seen that match these kinds of qualifications. You know, maybe while we were going through this message today, some names came to mind immediately. You know, this is, this is a guy that I see doing this. This is a guy that I see matching this kind of, of qualification. So uh, today we're going to ask you to, to recommend the names of some men who you've seen who've matched these kinds of qualifications listed in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, not just men who serve, but men who could be placed over others, you know, to help them to serve, to, to lead people in service. You know, so uh, today we're going to ask you to recommend some names. Today won't be the only day. We'll give you another week. You can get this in uh, next week. But uh, if you have names today that immediately popped into mind, we'd love to hear what those names are. And if you have others later on that pop into mind, you can send those later on too. But we're trying to get, you know, as much of the, the feedback as we can. So we're uh, trying to get it during our congregational meeting. Number two, we're also asking you to be willing to serve, whether that's serving as a deacon maybe serving in some other way in the church so that good and necessary ministry is able to be done in the church and you'll hear about more ways to serve uh, during our congregational meeting. The other thing that I'd ask you to do is to watch out for divisions in the body. You know, that was one of the, uh, the, the primary concerns in Acts chapter six, that there were divisions, complaints against one another and these are dangers and threats against the church and uh, also to ask you to guard your hearts against uh, becoming uh, a danger to the church by division, you know, address a division when it comes up, you know, not to sit on it and uh, allow it to fester and to grow into something bigger, but to, uh, to raise those concerns so that uh, the church can deal with those things. And also, and this is the, the fourth one, if you're here and you have not yet been obedient to the faith, you've come to the right place. Because <laughs> this is a place where the word of God is, is taught where we look to scripture, where we look to what the, the Lord has to say, and where we make a priority over the word of God in prayer. So that, that when you do come here, that you do hear about who Jesus Christ is. That, that you do hear about what Christ has done. That he's lived the perfect life, the life that you couldn't live. That he died as a substitute on the cross for those who would believe and trust in him. And that he 
was raised again on the third day, proving that he had power over death and over the grave. He was raised in power and he offers eternal life to all those who believe. That's the message that you'll hear from this pulpit consistently by God's grace as we're freed up to do the ministry. So uh, if you're here today and you have not yet been obedient to the faith, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you. We'll actually have some men down here after the service, uh, uh, those that could uh, pray uh, for you. But uh, there's hope for sinful men because uh, of the, the, the life, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's hope. And that's the hope that, that we offer and uh, will continue to offer by God's grace. Uh, this church will not become an open gym or just a, a political you know, center for activism or whatever else you might think about. This place will be known for the word of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll stand on and that's what we'll die on. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had in your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the, the wisdom that scripture gives to us. Uh, we're not left without uh, the wisdom that we need to, uh, to govern uh, the church, to make wise decisions. Uh, Father, you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness and for uh, a church practice and um, uh, oversight, direction. Now, Father, we pray for our congregational meeting that we'll have uh, today, and uh, as we talk about uh, various issues, uh, Father, we pray that uh, you'd help our church to be prepared and uh, ways of, of service and offering feedback. Uh, Father, we uh, look forward to the discussion uh, that we'll have as a church family, and uh, Father, we do thank you for uh, this family that you've brought together. Uh, Father, it's just a, a joy to be a part of, of this church. Uh, it's a joy to be able to speak about this church and uh, to share my joy with, with others, uh, Father, over this congregation. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would continue to walk together in unity. Uh, Father, that you would uh, help us to, uh, uh, to, to fight against the uh, division within the church, that we wouldn't allow it to arise within our own hearts, that we wouldn't spread it among the, the brethren. Uh, Father, that we would all be able to pull in the same direction uh, because we have uh, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Father, I pray that our, our unity, uh, Lord, would uh, just continue to be demonstrated in this congregation uh, through all the multiplicity of gifts that you've given uh, to this church. And uh, Father, that uh, we would seek to serve and honor our head, who is Jesus Christ, uh, the author and uh, perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.